You're listening to a podcast by the Center for Action and Contemplation. To learn more, visit cac.org. Our desire is to honor and share the best parts of the Christian contemplative traditions so that this collective wisdom might serve the flourishing of humanity, all beings, and all of creation. My name is Ben Kesey, and I lead the development team at the Center for Action and Contemplation. I want to thank all of you who are generous donors giving freely and cheerfully to make this work possible. If you've been impacted by these podcast conversations and are inspired to invest in the future of CAC's mission and work, twice per year, we invite your financial support. To contribute, go to cac.org donate to make a gift. Thank you so much. Welcome to this bonus episode of Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr. This episode holds the space between season one, where we unpack the themes of the book, and season two, where we will respond to listener questions from Richard's book, The Universal Christ. We recorded this episode with Richard in the middle of season one, but it didn't quite fit the flow then, but thought we'd share it with you all now. In the first half of this conversation, we ask Richard about the formation of the Center for Action and Contemplation, its whereabouts, and what a day in the life of Richard Rohr looks like. In the second half of the conversation, all three of us take turns asking questions and sharing about our lives, practices, and contemplative journeys. As always, this podcast was recorded in a tiny hermitage on the grounds of the Center for Action and Contemplation, a nonprofit founded by Richard Rohr located in Albuquerque, New Mexico. Because of that, you may hear neighborhood sounds such as sirens, planes, and of course, our next door neighbor's dog. We are your hosts. I'm Paul Swanson. And I'm Bree Stoner. We're staff members of the Center for Action and Contemplation and students of this contemplative path, trying our best to live the wisdom of this tradition amidst hazy summer days, stepping barefoot on sharp Lego pieces, and the shifting state of our world. We hope that you enjoy this bonus episode and that it tides you over as we put the final touches on season two of Another Name for Everything. Richard, we want to kind of provide some context about what is the Center for Action Contemplation? Why did you start it? Can you you bring us back to, is it 87? Uh, 86, I moved here to Albuquerque, but started the, that first year what I did was I was just living with Franciscans and helping a bit in the parish, but I'd use my weekdays to try to meet all the people in the New Mexico area, not all, but all I could find out about, who were doing work with socially marginalized groups, the poor, social justice, every little group. Uh, Because I didn't want to come in as an outsider. I had this advantage of being a Franciscan, so my community was known here, but I wasn't known here. Uh, And that was most of 86. Just meeting, talking, going to meetings, uh, to have enough confidence to say, we could start this here, and uh, it would be helpful. Not in competition. I didn't want to be repeating what other people were doing or in competition with anybody else. And it worked well, I think, I think. And I was hard to resist all the different agendas people wanted us to, you know, be primarily about protesting at the uh, nuclear base here or whatever it might be. But um, 
Yeah, we started in 87. And my idea was, because of my first 15 years on the road, I had met so many people who did care about issues of justice and peace, but were not either happy people or integrated people. I don't know, that must sound judgmental, the integrated part, but I knew I, I wouldn't want to work with them, to mm -hmm. be very frank about it. It was just so much agenda, so much passion in one direction. And if you didn't agree with that direction, we really don't have time for you. So my desire was to create a place where people who were committed to these issues that I believe in too, could do it in a more gracious way, a more human way, a more dialogical way, a more contemplative way. And that became the center. But how you do that and what works is what's grown over the years, you know. I think I started, well, I know I started the early internships. I would give half of the classes on liberation theology and half on contemplation. Uh, I taught much more liberation theology in the early years than I do now. And the reason that happened was just, I realized a lot of other people were writing and doing a lot of justice work. But the contemplative insight in the way we now understand it, so few were doing it. Uh, Thomas Keating being one of the few. Uh, and even the contemplative orders of the Catholic Church mostly were not contemplative. They were just nice people who prayed a lot. But, but they didn't have an alternative consciousness very often, which is why they could be sucked in to being uh, very much uncritical of the Church itself and, uh, and the American culture. And when you're uncritical of American culture, I can tell you what wins, American culture. Mm. <laughs> you're not a Christian after a while, you're an American. Mm. And they don't even know that. <laughs> uh, so I was able to see this wonderful synthesis that the contemplative mind gives you. An ability to do works of justice, but now from a much more genteel place. And I don't mean soft by that, but just more dialogical, more conversational, less aggressive. Mm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. yeah. When I first came out to a CAC conference and then later the living school, my mom used to say, oh, you're going out to the caca place. You know, because she's like, caca. Because the CAC. <laughs> oh, 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 I see. <laughs> and then she would also say things like, uh, did, you, did you see any UFOs this time? Oh, Ross. Are you out there waiting for, <laughs> for the second coming? You know, so uh, I, I find that as an employee of the CAC, oftentimes when I'm on an airplane or even with my family, I have a difficult time describing what the CAC yes. is. So I'm curious, say you're on an airplane uh -huh. and you sit down and people somebody doesn't know who you are, uh, they, they strike up a conversation with you. Often happens. And uh, how do you describe, what's your like one sentence to two sentence pitch of, 
how you would describe the CAC? Well, I start with, I hope this isn't too self-defended, but I don't give them more information than I, I think they might be able to handle. If they bite at that, I go further. So I'll usually say, oh, I'm a teacher. Hmm. I don't say I'm a priest or a Franciscan. Oh, what do you teach? They'll always say. <laughs> and I'll usually say, well, I, I teach human growth and, and uh, cultural change. Then if they bite at that, I, I, I'll begin to release more directly spiritual information. Usually it stops right there because they're not interested in human growth or, or cultural <laughs> change, you know. So, uh, yeah, whereas if I say I'm a priest, it's just, oh, uh, all the, the theological questions that have never been answered usually don't matter, uh, and it never stops. Well, I have an aunt who was Catholic. But she left the church. <laughs> so it's never good to release that until you know there's a person there with some human growth themselves and are going to uh, be able to talk about the subject. Mm. But I admit that might be too defended on my part. But it is the Franciscan approach to evangelization. It's to first present your humanity not preach the gospel until you know there's a some kind of readiness to hear the gospel. Mm. Yeah, it's a pretty good line, though. Human growth and mm. cultural change. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah that's helpful. Uh, Should have asked okay. you that question a long time ago. <laughs> yeah. I was going to ask you, how, how do you describe it? Um, mm. usually I say I work for a teaching organization that's founded um, in the Christian contemplative tradition. Yeah. And then that brings up a lot of questions, like, well, what do you mean by Christian contemplative tradition? Uh -huh. or, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, but, that's very good. Yeah. Very good. Um, it's interesting, though, because I, I think for, for me, the first time I came, uh, I'd never been to New Mexico, and so there's mm. a lot about New Mexico that reminds me of Spain. It's very I've been told that many times. Very yes. dry desert landscape. Dry desert, mm -hmm. Yes. And uh, Albuquerque is a really quirky town. <laughs> how how would you describe where we live right now? What what this place is like? Well, we're in the South Valley of Albuquerque, which is the sort of really Mexican American barrio, and the Franciscans. Our tradition is to always. Uh, put our parishes in the poorer part of town. So the parish Franciscan church is on the corner here. Now here we are 30 years later, and this mile-long road in the South Valley is called Five Points Road. And it's amazing how there's been an energy here. Uh, if you go down the street, there's the community garden, which is our land. There's the center itself which was the former Franciscan formation house for the young Franciscans. And they sh uh, sold it to us in 91 for our center. Then there's the, uh, what we call Still Point or the present uh, visitor center. And that was owned by the Damien brothers, the, the only community in the early 90s that were taking care of AIDS patients. Mm -hmm. And uh, when that need sort of passed and the brothers moved on, they also sold their little house to us. 
and it's served many purposes. It was a guest house at the beginning. Uh, now, as I said, it's the office space and, and the resource center and visitor center. Uh, then, if you keep going down the street, there's the, the uh, Catholic Worker House, which takes in people who need temporary housing. Then the Franciscan Church on the corner. There's a new piece of land, which they hope to build the new center on in the years ahead. So here we are. And I was so delighted when I was at a, a zoning meeting. Uh, in fact, it was to get this new piece of land zoned mm -hmm. so we could build here. And um, they, I met the head of the Neighborhood Association, who lives right behind us here, by the way. And he said, let me tell you something, Father. I bet you don't even know this. He said, do you know the neighborhood in Albuquerque with the lowest crime rate is right here? Hmm. And he says, I know it because I'm the head of the neighborhood association. He says, there's, there's, there's a lot of crime in the South Valley, but not along Five Points Road. Hmm. And he said, many of us attribute it, I hope he's right, to all the good energy you've brought Mm. of caring people, intelligent people, uh, quiet people. So I hope that's true. I hope we've created a little spiritual energy here. Because mm. uh, I've always been a little disappointed that we, we're not that involved in the neighborhood. You know, we're more national, international, broadcasting around the world, and uh, probably don't know our neighbors as much as we should. Mm. Is, go ahead. No, no. What were you going to say, Richard? I was just going to say, is that the kind of answer you wanted? Yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. Just to oh, get a yeah. sense of, you know, the space and the CAC, and and I love that description of five points. Yeah. I mean, it is the, the land we walk and in between yeah. spaces and the acequias around here that we'll often find time on our breaks to take a little stroll and see some peacocks and llamas of our neighbors and <laughs> dogs barking. And our buildings are little adobes, which so fit the New Mexico yeah. ambience. Uh, no, we're blessed, very blessed. Mm. And of course, the beautiful cottonwood tree in the back is the one piece of art that people most remember. Mm -hmm. We have this 150-year-old magnificent cottonwood. So it's, I always say it's our, it's our standing theology mm. of coherence and beauty uh, even though the branches are so irregular and asymmetrical and twisted, it's stunning. It's, a, it, it's stunning. It's beauty. Yeah. So, Paul, you're kind of a veteran of the CAC. You've been here pretty long. How long has it been now? How Ten many years? years? I think I've been here two years longer than Richard. <laughs> <laughs> he's the real secret founder. <laughs> yes, he's I, just so humble about it. I first yeah. came in 2007. Seven, wow. What was it like then, and, and what is it like now? Like, you know, mm. when people think about the Center for Action and Contemplation, I think, I don't know what they imagine. Is, it, is this a building? Is this a place? What is it like? I wonder if you could describe what our workplace is like. And yeah. Well, it's wild to be in this hermitage, because when I first arrived, when I was picked up from the airport, I was brought to this hermitage. Mm. And I spent my first night in here. Uh, really and just wondering what me yeah where did i arrive how did i get here <laughs> who are these people um and i quickly had the sense of i found my people like th mm. the wow. the vibe of 
caring for one another, encouraging one another on this contemplative path and rooted in justice and seeking mm. uh, action in the world, that it was also an embodied faith really kind of spurred me on. And then as I started my job as an intern, you know, I was uh, taking Richard's old tapes and digitizing them. Yeah. So I had your voice in my head so for humbly in the background. entire year. <laughs> I'd walk in and there you were listening to my stuff, humbly. <laughs> so I got a good dose of you um, in that first year. But just the space here, you know, in a lot of ways it's very typical of a lot of offices where we, there's shared offices, there's uh, a kitchen where we break bread together at times. Um, but I think the the setting of the South Valley and the Adobe buildings um, has its own unique character that really kind of holds that spirit. My only wish is that the doorways were a little taller um, <laughs> for a few of us who have banged These our heads. These Nordic types <laughs> and their tall bodies. <laughs> But yeah, the space is charming and beautiful. And, you know, mm. a lot of our time is working at in offices with teams and in meetings. Yeah. And mm-hmm. there's no kind of rarefied air of like we work in silence and, and robes and bow mm. to one another constantly. Mm-hmm. There's the character and the, the hardship of any work relationship. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, so that's how I would best describe it. Yeah, I remember my, my entry point to the CAC was through the... Well, actually, it was first a conference that I came to. And it was the conference in which you announced that you were going to do the living school. And I just remember sitting there, and I was 28 years old, and I was like, whatever that is, I am going to. (laughs) And you were in the first class, weren't you? Oh, yeah. What year would that have been? Oh, my gosh. Would it be? Be, uh... Uh, 2012 maybe or 11 11 or 12 when you announced it because it was already in the works but you you kind of let everybody in on it so um, yeah so I I applied and I was so excited to get in and that first class coming I had that same feeling Paul of like oh my word these are my people you know just to be surrounded by other people who had that deep desire and hunger and um, yeah Richard I remember you got up and uh, your teaching and Cynthia's teaching and Jim's teaching was just so transformative. Mm. But the being on this land and interacting, you know, we actually met here in the offices is where, where we had our classes because we were part of that first class before you moved over to the, oh, to the other side. Oh, and, and mm-hmm. brother son. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah. You were the only class. Yeah, so we just to be able to interact with the staff and, and be here on the site and see your office and it's what we sort of want to move back to yeah it was so Mm -hmm. it was just so humble and real and open and honest it was very beautiful Hmm. well it makes me happy i hope that's the case you know who was was it schumacher who said small is beautiful Hmm. that's always been a worry of mine even the amount of property we now own on this street it worries me a little bit uh I don't want us to become too big. And that's why we're considering moving the classes back here on Mm -hmm. site Mm -hmm. instead of a fancy hotel. Whether we can do that, I don't know. But, yeah. Once you're, you know, they say every increase of 25 people, the whole managerial, relational, expectant uh, equation changes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I hope we don't get too big. And yet in our arrogance and desire, we want to reach as many people as we can, too. Mm. So that's the conflict. Yeah. Mm. Well, speaking of humility, 
uh, Richard, you, you live basically on a parking lot behind the <laughs> parish that you teach at. I wonder if you could share a day in the life of, of, oh. of you. What is it, you know, if you could describe what your average day is like and mm-hmm. what you do. Yeah, well, this August, I will have lived 20 years in that little house, which I call my hermitage. It's certainly a quasi-hermitage. And what I mean by hermitage is not describing the building so much as the lifestyle of the person who lives there. That I don't actually invite a lot of visitors, uh, and everybody seems to get that. I'm not trying to be antisocial, but I'm just trying to protect as many hours of quiet as I can. So uh, it starts that way. I almost automatically wake up between 5.30 and 6. I uh, make my cup of coffee to get the uh, neurons firing. (laughs) And uh, drinking that cup of coffee, I sit in my prayer place. I have some icons in front of me, although I change them in different seasons. Uh, So I, I finish the coffee. Then I, I must admit, I'm ashamed to admit it, I check if there's any urgent email. <laughs> if there's anybody waiting for something the night before or something like that. Usually they are. But uh, Then I, you know, clean up, come over here uh, to the center, which is just three-tenths of a mile around the corner. It's so nice. To, you know, I could walk to work uh, if I... Uh, had more energy, I guess. You just take the stretch limo. The stretch. <laughs> and my chauffeur drives me, yes. <laughs> now, for years, I had Venus, my dog, there living with me. And that was a delightful presence. And I still miss not having a pet. But as long as I keep doing so much and being gone from the house so much I just don't feel it's fair to the dog but if my body slows down more I'd love to get one more if I can Uh, so then I come to the center usually I get here between 7 and 7 30 and my that's when my mind is the sharpest the morning that's when the ideas come I often just start writing what becomes an article or these two recent uh, monographs that I've done. It just comes. It's, I'm so blessed that God makes it so easy. Um, yeah, then I uh, lead the morning sit at 8.30 at, at the center. Usually there's an appointment right after, not always. Uh, but more often than not, there are people who will come to the morning sit from another state and they'll say, can I talk with you after? Or it's a staff meeting. Uh, so I, I, then I pick up the Franciscan mail and the CAC mail uh, shortly after 10 and uh, deliver those. And then I work the rest of the afternoon in my little hermitage. Yeah. Mm. Uh, so evenings, I, I you know, I'm just invited out to dinner so much. <laughs> and I, I've learned to turn down over half of them. Uh, 
But it's why it's hard to lose weight, too. People are always <laughs> treating me to wonderful meals. He's such a good Franciscan. <laughs> uh, but then I do, I, my mind doesn't work well for writing in the evening. I just, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's slower, it's not creative. So I'll often watch news, invariably. I'm a news person, even though I know I'm getting uh, just an American although BBC News is often better. And then I tend to watch either documentaries, history, or nature shows mm -hmm. if I'm going to watch some television. And I have to say, I mean, a lot of them are really good. <laughs> and there's been some recently on Native Americans. The whole history of the peoples in the Americas is uh, a little romanticized, but still an education that I need. Mm -hmm. A few weeks ago, there was a series on empires. I don't know if you saw it, just mm -hmm. taking one empire after another and showing its rise and its fall, its rise and its mm -hmm. fall. So I find that uh, if you choose, and I know you with children can't do it as easily, but I have that freedom. If you really choose what you're going to watch, I'm not anti-TV at all. I think there's some really good on PBS and Nature Channel especially. Mm -hmm. I've been. I watched a few things recently on Nazism, which, amazingly, the rise of Nazism uh, has a lot of apropos to our present situation. It's scary. So I do watch television, so you don't romanticize my hermitage. But otherwise, I don't listen to music much. If if I had to choose between sound and silence, I will always choose silence. And I have a little garden. And some people do come from the parish for various needs. It's often, Father, would you bless my rosary? <laughs> but it gives me a chance to meet them. You know, they're so sweet. Uh, yeah. It's one of my favorite images of you is pulling up to your house and seeing you watering all your plants you? and your, you? <laughs> your flowers. And, and also the image of you with Venus. Uh, oh, you're yeah. such a lover of living mm. things. And, um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, the, the, the garden thing is, is I'm still a Kansas farmer. Hmm. Uh, from my background, uh, growing things was just in my parents' blood. They didn't feel right if they weren't planting something, watering something, weeding something. My mother said once, if there aren't weeds to pull, I don't know what I'll do in heaven. <laughs> now that's a German attitude, I'm sure. But uh, yeah. And that's where I did spend my summers in maybe from about age nine to age 14, something like that, we would, me and my older sister, would go out and live with our cousins on a huge Kansas wheat farm. Oh, those are just idyllic memories. Talk about order, disorder, reorder. That was order. Mm. Everything was, I don't mean in a rigid way. I mean, there was a place for everything. There was a meaning for everything. There was... Uh, uh, immersion in extended family. This particular uh, family, my Aunt Sally and Uncle Ham, uh, ten children, ten children that lived. So to be out there was just to be surrounded by friends, you know. Mm. Oh, what a way to grow up. Wow. Yeah.
Didn't I describe recently? I must have been about 11 or something like that. Jumping naked in the grain silo. Where did I... T- <laughs> I think you should tell that story again. <laughs> well, it was just our little secret, me and my cousins. And I said, the poor people who bought bread from Kansas, <laughs> bread from Kansas they, they had a huge water silo, uh, I mean, wheat silo. And we had a way to climb up to the top. And we take our clothes off and just dive, <laughs> dive into the grain. And it was such a good feeling. <laughs> well, we never told anybody about it. Now I've told everybody about it. Yeah. So interesting how landscape oh my. shapes us. Oh. You know, like just hearing you describe your childhood and what you grew up with. Yeah. The flat plains of Kansas, which I know are the essence of boring to most people. But I remember my father, who was a very simple man, uh, he said, oh, no, I don't want to live around mountains or, or hills. He, said, he was just justifying Kansas, of course. But he said, I want to see what's coming at me. Mm. And I want to see where I'm going. I like Kansas. Yes, Daddy. <laughs> and he did. He loved Kansas. And I guess we all love where we started. Yeah. 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 There's, I can't remember his, if this is the right name or not. There's this poet in Minnesota, I think it's Jim Harrison, who talked about it's easy to find beauty in mountains and forests, but to find beauty in the plains it takes a real poet's eye to oh, see it. Oh, that's And good. I've always taken wow. a lot of heart in that. Yeah. That, if you ever find the exact quote, give it to yeah, me. Yeah, I will. I'll send it to my siblings because I know they feel that way too. You know, out in the West where my whole family was from, it's the area where we, there was no wood. There was no trees out there. Uh, We have stone fence posts and uh, they're just completely different than anywhere else. But it shows how rare wood was. Mm -hmm. And my grandparents both lived in sod houses made out of the earth. I mean, Mm -hmm. very similar to the Pueblos. Now, eventually they got a wooden house, but when they first came, that's all they could do is create houses from the dirt. Mm. Well, they were poor. Which has always given me a great sympathy for the poor. Because I know that's where I came from. Mm-hmm. You know? yeah. mm-hmm. Now, how does it sound to the two of you? We have on this creaky table here in the Hermitage, we have a, a number of questions as a way to Ooh. kind of... Surprise, hopefully, and delight one another with (laughs) sharing some of our own background and history and who we are. Do y'all want to go around and just each take a question, uh, starting maybe with you, Richard, if you want to pull pull out a question (laughs) and we can each take a turn. I like it. Take this over here. Okay. All right, here it is. What are you most wrestling with right now? Just what you probably want to hear. And <laughs> dropping into something light. You know, hear this right. It's not, I am seeing a lot of doctors now. And it's not fear of death or I'm not in much discomfort. I'm really not. Even lately, I've gotten my strength back. I, I'm not as weak as I was most of this past year. I don't know where the strength came from. But it's it, like... It's just the amount of appointments with doctors and the amount of meds I'm on. I, I think they added a, 
uh, ninth one, <laughs> to help me deal with my hot flashes, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you need to share this. <laughs> I'm getting female hormones to kill my prostate cancer. And um, they warn me now, Richard, you will have crying jags and you will have hot flashes. Welcome. <laughs> Welcome, Richard, to how the rest of the but human I, race lives. I haven't had any crying jags yet. Oh. Uh, but I, I, the hot flashes got really bad. They were about two an hour. And in the night, when you're under blankets, you throw them off. It's just, oh, I'm burning alive. Then you fall back asleep, and in a few minutes you're cold because the hot flash is passed. So you have to take the blankets back on. So you don't sleep all night. You know, it's just blank. So I told him this. I said, is there anything you can do? He said, well, in fact, there is. So I've been on it for about a month now. In fact, that's when I've gotten stronger. Huh. It seems so. It seems to be having good side effects. But what I'm wrestling with is just this preoccupation with doctors and medicines, pills that I take in the morning, that I take midday, that I take evening. Oh, it's just such a burden. Mm. To have to worry about what Francis called brother ass. <laughs> your body, your body. And you know, when you're young, you just don't... I never thought about my body very much. Mm -hmm. I took it for granted. And now to have to be so attentive to it, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, I've got a rash over much of my body. It's probably caused by one of these meds. It constantly is itching. Mm -hmm. That's my only real discomfort. But it gives me a sympathy for old people. Uh, I've seen old people all my life. We all have. But, in, you know, until you're in that body, you don't realize how hard it is to grow old. It gives me so much more sympathy for old people. Uh, so that's what I'm wrestling with the most. Not the pain, just the, the inconvenience. Because I'm used to convenience. Mm -hmm. That's probably the right word. This is constantly being inconvenienced by my own body. <laughs> yeah, so. I should have gone to your doctor when I was, you know, just when after, you had having, after just having a baby to be like, can you, can you take care of this? Also, can you also, is there a pill for the, the not sleeping? And can I take a pill for this little creature that needs me all the time? Because that would, that would be great. I'm going to just... Is, yeah. there, is there something you can do for that? Yeah. So you do have hot flashes during pregnancy. Oh, yeah. I mean, the hormones. It's just... It's, it's just... It's, yeah. yeah. And I mean, talk about a bodily experience. You're just invaded by an yeah. alien, basically. Uh -huh, yeah. So um, thank you for sharing that, though, Richard. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Paul, you want to go next? Paul, take one. Yeah. What am I wrestling with? Um, oh, we all answered the same one. Yeah. I yeah. see. Okay. Um, I think the thing for me is, you know, it's parenthood and being a father and yeah. in a time of unrest and climate change and uncertainty mm. which i also recognize we're all born into like chaos and uncertainty but like uh it can feel so pointed uh once mm. you become a parent mm. and so i think you about want to protect them that's it sure yeah and mm -hmm. even thinking about what does it mean to raise uh, a, a son in a white male body in our current culture. Mm -hmm. um, and who do I need to become to do that well? Mm -hmm. So all these kind of swirling questions about how do, I how do I raise a family in this? How do I be a good partner? 
how to um what does it mean to be a christian in this space and all these are just tied yes. together yes. as one question for me even though they come out in 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 different angles it's all held together of i guess like the overarching question to me is like how to be human in a way mm. it's just the thing that keeps kind of coming out uh in my life and the books i read and the questions i ask in conversations with friends and, and colleagues so constantly wrestling with my own humanity mm-hmm. and the implications of that for family life i have no doubt you'll do it well but thank you for sharing yeah. the wrestling yeah. yeah that's really well said paul what about you Bree? uh i echo a lot of what you just said as a young parent um in my case recently divorced and uh just wrestling through choice and um, agency in life and mm. how to live authentically and then the cost of that authenticity. Um, I feel like I'm just totally overtaken by this desire for uh, coherence and meaning and yes. pattern. And yes. so sometimes I, <laughs> I drive myself crazy, you know, trying to find the meaning in everything. And um, so there is something uh, in my life right now of, of wrestling with the day-to-day, slowing down, being present to the kids. I have two little ones. I know you have two little ones too, Paul. Um, it really grounds me. And then, uh, yeah, the ordinary, like just the, the rhythm of life, finding that rhythm of life in the midst of this very hectic season of life, uh, how to slow down, how to, how to really be here. I think that's... That's my desire. I think I struggle with doing it, but that's that's what I want. Yeah. Well, you're doing it well. Thank you both. Well, shall I grab yes. another? Yes. Dig into the pot. Okay. Oh, well, this is a good one. Good one. <laughs> it's going really, to be really awkward for you, though, Richard. Who have been your mentors and teachers, and who are you reading right now? Oh. Uh, so do I have to start first? I have to answer first. Yeah, I right? think you have to start. Well, uh, Richard, oh, <laughs> you're God one of them. Um, mentors and teachers, yeah, I think when I think about uh, this path of, of, of contemplation and action and this discovering this deeper path of Christianity, you were obviously uh, a herald of that path, a prophet in the wilderness. I remember being in my early 20s in L.A., and having fallen out of belonging to institutional church. And I, I had just come out of this mega evangelical church in Michigan. And, um, and even as progressive and cool as that place was, I was looking for something more. I needed something more. And um, something beyond the quippy Christianity and the clever, you know, the clever answers. Uh, I needed something that could make space for complexity and for paradox and so yeah your voice was one of the first i remember somebody sent me everything belongs oh, and i book. just uh-huh the book. the book and i devoured that and it was just Did like you? oh just that's a good one to start with yeah, yeah it was so helpful so it was really my introduction to the mystics and then from there uh discovering cynthia's work who's also one of the mm. faculty members at the living school um so i'd say you and cynthia have been huge teachers in my life uh and beyond that i'd say poetry is like a kind of a constant companion of of teaching and i mean so many i won't list but i think just 
the eyes of the poets that allow me to see my life from a new place with a, like a level of insight and, and attention and uh, yeah, perspective. So yeah, how about you, Richard? Yeah, well, as I mentioned before, I was reading the last few weeks the Brazilian educator, uh, Paulo Freire. Uh, it's just hitting me more than ever uh, as we see what's happening in our culture. <sighs> to women, to minorities of every stripe, the reemergence of racism, that it's just imperative that people like myself, white privileged Americans, that I do whatever I can to learn from, you know, there's another way to look at it. <laughs> and Barbara Holmes would be the other one that I think you introduced me to, Paul. And now she's joined us here, which I'm thrilled about. Um, so I think that's where my passion is these days. I had plenty of years to study the mystics, and but right now it's people who look at it differently than white male Christianity, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, even though they're not anti-Christianity. Uh, so Paulo Freire would be a supreme example of that. Uh, yeah, I think that sums it up. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. How about you, Paul? Yeah, you know, I, it's... When I first came to the CAC 11 years ago, I, I didn't know who Richard Rohr was. And really? um, I think that was one of the unknown gifts for me <laughs> is that I still remember the first day. Someone's like, there's Richard, there's Richard. And I was like, which one's who's, Richard? Who's he? Said, What's a Richard? Yeah, so what, what did bring you here? I, well, I read those eight core principles oh, of the, the principles. CAC. And oh. I was just like, this place oh. has something special. Oh. Um, but I mean, what a what a delight to find out that I think the first time I met you were in a cowboy hat, oh. and I was just like, oh, this just is to cover up my bald head. This is the guy who, who founded this place. Um, but then getting into the the work of digitizing all those old tapes, yes. just kind of being baptized into a new way of uh, living into contemplative Christianity. I was very much kind of brought into this type of work through uh, Brother Lawrence mm -hmm. oh. and Thomas Merton mm -hmm. and th this kind of personification of you as a teacher in, on this path really helped enliven me in a whole new way that I couldn't mm -hmm. have expected. Um, now you hadn't gone to Creighton yet? I hadn't gone to Creighton yet. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that was later. That was later. And so it was all kind of on my own that I was I was seeking this kind of sure way, you know, dipping my toes into uh, Zen and mm. the Christian mystics that I could uh, easily get to as a Protestant. <laughs> and then until kind of my my landscape, I could travel it more deeply and farther with uh, deeper understanding and understanding the language of it as yes. well. Mm -hmm. um, and then being, you know, having access to teachers by working here, getting to know the yeah. work of Cynthia Bergeau and James Finley and um, Brian McLaren, Brian McLaren, yeah, and like Thomas Keating, mm -hmm. and then yeah, who I'm reading now, Barbara Holmes has been one that's kind of been constantly on my bookshelf. Yeah, uh, as I've been getting into her work and trying to 
again, it's kind of a new renaissance for me to, to recognize my own limitations on what I don't yes. know. Mm. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. Which mm. has been beautiful. So, yeah, and then there's a whole other slew of books that are just stacking up, so mm-hmm. I'm not going to... Was that one of the, Was that part of the question, what are we reading now? That was the last bit, wasn't oh. it? Who are you reading have, now? I didn't Did even you? catch it. Who are you reading now, Richard? I said You said Paola? Oh, yeah. Okay. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, I think through uh, Barbara Holmes' Howard Thurman. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, so I've been, Thurman, good. been reading some of, of his work. Um, I'm also checking out Beverly Lanzetta, and she has a, a book called The Monk Within. I got it. Yeah. I haven't read it. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Thank you both. Yeah. Yes. All growing edges. <laughs> All right, let's see. The question I just pulled out is what is your relationship to the arts? What art moves you? <laughs> well, we already know what kind of art Richard loves. But <laughs> mm. he doesn't like. <laughs> so you're saying when you look at a splatter of red paint on a white canvas, you feel something really <laughs> profound. Yeah, I won't say it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, music is a big one for me. Uh, mm. I always wish I had more musical talent, mm. but I, I've been a great appreciator of, you know, in particular, like folk music. Uh, Bob oh. Dylan was a big gateway for me. The 60s. And, yeah. Uh, those kind of timeless songs yeah. that, that speak to some sort of, there's this underlying existential angst and, and search mm. for meaning that has always kind of gripped me. But then also other music, you know, arts, uh, Within, within film as well. Uh, sometimes having those experiences where you're not exactly sure what you're experiencing mm. when it comes to seeing mm. a, a movie that just, like Tree of Life or, or something that's just so mm. big that you can't mm. totally conceptually, but it sits mm. with you and continues to work on you over mm. time. Uh, but yeah, and poetry as well. Poetry, knowing that there's people who can touch reality in a way or see reality that and can also articulate that in a way that can expand my own experience and um i'm thinking particularly of i'm going to forget his name lee lee young lee 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 has been a poet who's just kind of smashed my Mm. my entire being brutal yeah yeah and uh he's a contemporary yeah 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 oh i have to look he and, right. and Teddy Macker is another poet who's just kind of again just uh, just incarnational poetry. If I've uh, if I've it ever just read slays it, slays you. Yeah, yeah. Well, I've got to yeah. discuss. See how far behind I am. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> it's not like you're not doing anything, yeah. Richard. You know. <laughs> but yeah, that's me. That's mm-hmm. the art that's getting under my skin right now. How about the two of you? Anyone want to want to bid? You go, Richard. Okay. You know, I have to say my really favorite art form is the three-dimensional sculpture. Hmm. I remember when I first uh, moved out here, Gordon Hauser, the Navajo sculptor, was still rising in fame, and there was a whole gallery in Santa Fe. I'd take people up there just to see what he did with shapes. Hmm. Uh, He's dead now. You see less of his art. Uh, and then there's a big outdoor sculpture uh, foundry outside of Santa Fe. But I've always loved sculpture. 
uh, almost want to touch it. Mm. It's so beautiful. Then after that, I think the the uh, painting, the, again visual arts. But uh, yeah, I, I always feel ashamed that music isn't that big a deal for me. Mm. I don't know why. I, I when I hear it and it's lovely, I fully enjoy it. But like I say, I would sooner have silence more than music. And maybe it's because Gregorian chant, as beautiful as that was, was forced on us every morning for 13 years, and we were really good at it. Good at it. People would fill the church just to hear us singing. Uh, but oh, that's it. Music became a, something that was forced or had to do to please God or whatever. Uh, so I'm not telling you what I like. I'm telling you, as a typical one does, what they don't like. <laughs> what they don't like. Uh, yeah. And, of course, poetry. I mean, you've seen behind the receptionist's desk at the other building all the books of poetry either I've collected over the years or were sent to me. I can't say I read all of them. But uh, you get a good poet who can say it in two lines and it's just ah mm, <laughs> it's reality uh because i love words i guess so poetry would be i don't read novels i bet i could count on my two hands the novels i've read my whole life i've always preferred nonfiction, philosophy psychology theology things like that that's enough <laughs> that's funny it makes me think have like Harry Potter right now. I should have listed that as another book I'm reading with my kids right now. So that's, yeah, novels are such a big part of uh, my landscape, especially with little ones. Sure. You know, reading, yes. reading together. When I think back on my relationship to the arts, I think uh, about being a kid and uh, a missionary kid in Spain, and my dad used to lead the music. And so I would wake up to the sound of him playing the guitar and singing. And uh, so I think through my dad was introduced to to the arts and music and um, wound up playing the guitar myself and did the singer-songwriter thing for a while. And I think my first song that I wrote was when I was like 14 years old or something. And it was like, I wish I didn't have to go away. (laughs) I wish that I could stay. I mean, it was really deep, you know. (laughs) But I think just the act of creating itself uh, it was a real exposure to what I hear you describe in contemplation. Mm. It's like a self-emptying. A, Without even calling it that. Yeah, yes. a radical presence, a, yes. a, a pouring out of yourself into something. And my parents also really were big fans of the Impressionists. And really? so, yeah, so they made a really big deal of the arts, which was... So crazy for a couple of Baptist missionaries, right? Yes. But we used to drive all over Europe just to just to go to different exhibits, and they took us to Cezanne's art studio. And I don't know how they afforded this, but they somehow managed to piece enough together to, to pay for art lessons for my brother and I to go to oh. visit this um, art master in Madrid. And he would mix his own paints you know, it's this tiny little studio in Madrid and you'd have to go up this marble staircase and he'd mix these paints himself and mm. I can still remember the smell of it. So, yeah, it's like this visceral relationship to the arts, I think is how I would describe it. Deep appreciation 
and uh, of course poetry, as you both mentioned. So, yeah, I think for me, the arts have really been my gateway and introduction to so much of what you teach, Richard, without knowing it, you know, not yeah. realizing it. But This idea of art expressing what we really believe, religious art, mm -hmm. what we really believe. I, I think that whole John Dominic Cross and study of painting of the resurrection really brought that home to me. There's what we say and what's the active faith mm -hmm. say. And that's revealed in art, <laughs> where it isn't filtered by orthodox theology. And there's a beauty too, like just the radical beauty of human beings creating something. Mm. You know, mm. how can you possibly have mm. a theology of, or or what you call the bad of bad anthropology when you see mm. so much beauty and yeah, I don't know, it's hopeful. Yeah, I love that. All right, back to you, Richard. You want to oh, pull another question? I take another one. Okay. Here it is. What is your context, social location, family situation? Well, there's no doubt, and the whole country seems to know, my context is the CAC, this wonderful community that is built up here that is passionate about education, about communication, and have such a postmodern, modern, uh, ability to do that with media that my generation never had. So that is the context in which I live. I get to say these things and then they tend to be multiplied ten times over. And other colleagues of mine, uh, I mean, they've told me more than once, I have to operate as a lone man show or lone woman show, you know, and I really don't. How blessed am I? Social location, I think by reason of being ordained, I there's no doubt I enjoy a certain status. You know, that's the way you're introduced. I, I try not to dress like a priest so it won't dominate, but uh, it's your, your, yourself or your image goes ahead of you and it gives you access that most people uh, do not have, you know. Mm -hmm. you know. Family situation, I still have all my siblings. We remain in regular uh, email and phone context, but they're all in Kansas, mm -hmm. so I don't have any family here on site, which is probably another reason why the Franciscans and CAC, in effect, become my operative yeah. family. Mm. Yeah. How about you, Paul? My context, yes, I am uh, live here in Albuquerque, so I'm a transplant from Minnesota. So I can't escape my Midwestern heart and way of speaking and apparently dressing. Um, so yeah, I, I come very much that Midwestern kind of background and sensibility to, I think, work and to how I want to participate and show up in life. Uh, my social location. Uh, the things that are very obvious is that I'm a white male heterosexual. I have a wife and two kids, and um, I am a part of that kind of, as Richard was saying, that privileged class of just by my appearance. I mm -hmm. am granted a lot of yeah, power, access, access yeah. and power mm -hmm. just, yeah. just by the body I'm born into. Um, and fam, I guess I just mentioned it. Yeah, I have a wife and a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter and... 
an eight week year eight weeks eight week, <laughs> I was say eight week year old an eight week old son mm-hmm. so I am in the throes of uh, parenting and sleeplessness and sometimes wondering if I've already said something because of that sleep deprivation um, and still in loving and close relationship with my family of origin so we're all spread out but that's kind of where I come from and you Brie talked about it a little bit just my background is growing up um, as a missionary kid in Spain and so my context is born here in the states but went to Spain when I was like six months old so for me it was there was no difference between me and all my Spanish friends and went to Spanish public school my first language was Spanish Uh, my real kind of cultural association is in Spain Uh, I still feel like a like a visitor here which is weird to say because you'd never know it right you know by my accent or just by the amount of years that i've been here but um yeah uh otherwise very midwestern as well uh when we moved back from spain we settled in in the midwest and i live there now in michigan and i come back and forth between michigan and albuquerque um about once a month to work and stay connected otherwise through the internet with all of my colleagues here. And um, yeah, so my social location is a a white woman and all of the privilege that comes with that. And um, I have two little ones, Um, Soren and Rowan, a nine-year-old and a six-year-old who keep me very real and very busy. (laughs) So yeah, that's that's my situation. Thank you. Yeah. You want to pull another card, Opry? You sure. get to pull one. Yeah, we use this one. All right. <clears throat> oh, this is a good one. What was an early experience of the divine or God or connectivity beyond what you were handed or taught? Uh. Um, you know, what's interesting is you, you were talking about novels earlier, and I was thinking about Tolkien and C.S. Lewis and... Um, a Wrinkle in Time by Madeline Langle, all these books that I grew up with. And we didn't have a television when I was a kid, so we spent a lot of time reading. Um, And I think that combined with uh, being what they call a third culture kid where you don't really belong in either culture created a level of, I don't know, a perception or a fluidity between what's real or perceived as real and everything else. So... I think as a kid, I remember having that sense of, of God, um, like a trap door that I could always get to that would take me to this more expansive place of belonging and belief that uh, was so much bigger than what I was being taught, even in like a, as a Baptist missionary kid. You know, what I was being handed was very, very narrow. I mean, in essence, we were there to, to convert all the Catholics <laughs> and save them from hell. You're welcome, <laughs> by the way. We were the whore of Babylon. Oh, my yes. God. We're so confused, you poor Catholics. (laughs) But uh, yeah, deep down, I think, and and, and modeled by my parents in in reality, their concern for people and culture and how Mm. they gave themselves to their work Mm. gave me a different access point. Uh, So yeah, I remember that felt experience. I'm very grateful for my childhood and and for my Baptist roots in this. It gave me a felt experience of God that 
I could never deny. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it was always so much bigger than the boxes I was being given mm-hmm. in, in what I was being taught. How about, how about you, Richard? Well, you know, I've told so many of my stories. I, I never know where they've been heard or which one should I focus on today. Well, one that I've told lesser since I talked about Kansas before and going out to the farm uh, in the summers. Off to the south side of my aunt and uncle's farmhouse with the ten cousins inside. Maybe it was to get away, I don't know, from so much noise and so many cousins. But there was a chokecherry bush. And right next, uh, in you know, the stubble in Kansas is rather not attractive. <laughs> but here next to this chokecherry, there was a, a, a patch of lovely velvety green grass that always grew in this same little area and with a little tree shading it. And I would go out there and lay there and look up at the stars. I mean, this sounds so typical in many ways. But uh, I have actually had in recent years a desire, I don't know who has that farmhouse now, but I would love to go back and see if that little patch of green grass is still there. Mm. And the chokecherry bush and the tree over. Because I know laying there, looking at the stars, I know I, I had a, a unitive experience of, mm. of being at home in the world, happy in the world, safe in the world. I must have thought of it as Jesus. That would have been the only word I would have, you know, but I had no apparitions or anything like that, but just deep contentment and okayness on my, uh, I used to call it my beautiful spot. Mm-hmm. It was even, it must be in my, well, those journals are gone. I, I burned most of my journals some years ago. Uh, but in the early ones, I would have talked about going to the beautiful spot. Uh, so I really, if I drive back to Kansas, I'm going to try to find it. Mm-hmm. It has that much in-depth meaning for me, just the spot. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it'd be wonderful to me if the velvety grass is still there. <laughs> that would be so neat. Yeah. Thanks, Richard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that'd be amazing. Just wouldn't to, it, to wouldn't revisit it? Oh, I've that got kind I'd of weep. childhood experience. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the one that came immediately to mind for me is very similar as far as it being out in nature. And uh, growing up in Minnesota, you know, you're about a stone's throw from a lake wherever you are. (laughs) And there's a lake behind the house I grew up in. And, you know, before school, I'd go fishing there or go swimming. Like, I just always wanted to be in or around the water. Mm. And I have this particular memory of being underwater, being, I don't know, seven or eight. Mm. And... uh, just seeing the, I was underwater with my eyes open and seeing like a ray of light mm. go through the water mm. and just holding my hands out, like kind of cupped like this cupped. and just trying to follow the light and that would come out of the water. Oh my God, that's beautiful. And I just kind of kept doing it over and over and mm. over again. And I just remember at one point my mom being on the beach, like, what are you doing? <laughs> Not in like, just kind of curious, like what, <laughs> what is this strange child doing? Um, but there was something about that experience of the the light passing through water 
and, and being connected to me that I, I couldn't put into words. And I grew up in the evangelical world and it was just nature experiences weren't always a part of that uh, yeah. beyond going to say uh, like a summer camp. So I didn't know what to do with this, but I was just wow. so drawn How to that lovely. experience. And then in my little brain, I kept trying to recreate whatever occurred. I can never get back to that that kind of felt sensation of mm. uh, of that light in the water. That's oh. really beautiful, and it's interesting yeah. that you say felt sensation. Mm. Like it, actually, when I think about probably that first recognition of God for me, I did this thing where when I would go to sleep as a kid, I would say, "God is the mattress." But it wasn't like so much of a clear thought, but it was like yeah. as I was falling asleep, it was like, I can let go because this is, I'm letting go into God, that God is this mattress God and that, mattress. that this was this this mm. reality that you were surrendering mm. yourself to. But it was a felt, you know, it wasn't, even to try to articulate it now just mm. feels yes. clunky yes. because yes. it was just so sensory yes. and, mm. and basic. So anyway, good stories. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, it's so good for you to both know, as I know you know, about your children. What a unique window that is. Yeah. Those early years where they will have those experiences and have parents like you mm -hmm. uh, that uh, maybe they would risk telling you about it. You know, it must be a wonderful gift you know, yeah. for them and for you. My littlest one, Rowan, just said to me last week, he says, Mama, I think God is like a dream catcher. And I said, what do you mean? He said, God catches the thoughts so that our hearts get bigger. Mm. And they come up with stuff like this mm. all the time, and you're just like, yes, sensei. <laughs> Thank you, Master <laughs> Rowan, for that deep teaching. <laughs> it's really profound. Yeah, I love that. Oh, this is great. So there's the Parker Palmer quote mm. of contemplation. Well, can you help me out? It's touching reality. With yeah, it's, it's whatever, whatever helps, helps you. you. Go come, ahead. <laughs> you should do it, Richard. Yeah, no, I'm not sure. You I, should do it. <laughs> whatever helps you uh, pierce through delusion, mm -hmm. is that the word he uses? And, and touch upon the real yeah. is contemplative. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. An amazing quote. It really is, yeah. What are you currently practicing right now to help you be in touch with the real? Hmm. You know, I guess... Uh, I find myself, this, I hope this isn't shocking, being less and less religious. <laughs> <laughs> yes! And people will think the books I write, that's all I must think, and I do in a way. But it's the really, one of you used the word clunky before. <laughs> it's real clunky, ordinary things um, that are becoming portals for me. And they they don't feel religious at all. It's just a, a moment of seeing something or being irritated by somebody. Uh, or, yeah, it really is the flow of life and death itself through me is my teacher. And it has little to do with church services or Bible quotes, even though then I will go find a Bible quote to affirm it so I can write it or preach it, which is a liability. But uh, it really is the flow of life and death, which is a constant po portal to the um, transcendent, to the holy, to the good. Yeah, that's my answer. Mm -hmm. I th 
there's my my daughter wakes me up every morning and uh, what time oh who Early. knows yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. it's uh sometimes it's the middle of the night middle and then i gotta night. bring her back oh. to bed um oh. but usually when she is up in the morning and she's kind of fully ready she just wants to uh be held mm. and uh, she calls it like just give me more squeezy time. Squeezy oh, time. That's so good. And that is so. <laughs> so good. does she crawl in bed with you and your wife? Or? Well, Lucia, I crawl. You know, I'm. She's kind of got me wrapped around her finger. She can I'm go her over bed. To her bed. Yeah. <laughs> and um, there's something about just that that desire of like oh. we all just want to be held. You oh. know, we all want to be held in love. So beautiful. And yeah. that's when I just kind of hold that reality. Like I'm holding her as that reality. I'm just. I know she's going to die someday. I know she's going to be hurt. Mm. I know she's going to love. But like, mm. it's all in that moment mm. of those that arms and her just giggling and, mm. and me trying not and to how cry. You miss that when yeah. she grows up and you won't be able to do that as easily. Wow. So yeah, that feels like my realest moment that That's occurs so at the start of each day. Um, Almost every day. Almost every day. <laughs> and when it doesn't, I'm just kind of like... No, you stay over there for half an hour or how long? It all kind of, yeah, it all no, kind of different. depends on the day and like mm. if I'm, uh, if she slept in or if we're running a little bit late. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's a great way to to remember what what yeah. the foundation of this whole what world matters, is. Yeah. Matters. Beautiful. That's so good. Squeezy time. Squeezy. <laughs> <laughs> it's a new contemplative practice. <laughs> Seriously, yeah. though, I need some squeezy time. Um, I think when we were talking earlier about childhood experiences, sensation, I think sensation helps me be in touch with the real uh, so much more than uh, even more like than, than the practices, a, a contemplative practice does. It's just... Can I be in touch with my body experiencing life right now? Uh, I I tend to just ignore it. You know what I mean? Like I go through life in a very mental way, I think. Um, so sensation and, and uh, I was having a conversation with a fellow staff member about the art of enjoyment, mm. you know, how to really be present to the enjoyment yes. uh, and then also to the anguish, the flip side of it. So thinking about my kids too, the physicality of, of where we're at and their ages and just how bodily they are. Uh, so I'd say my kids put me in touch with sensation on a very daily basis. And then when they're with their dad on the flip side, it puts me in touch with the anguish of absence mm. of that. So I think it's both. And if I have to, be, if I was going to be really honest, which I, I think I'm going to be is just that it's, I'm trying to learn how to be more okay with not being okay. Uh, to kind of be acclimated to the anguish of things just as much as the enjoyment and the pleasure of it. You know, I, yeah, I miss them horribly when they're not with me. It's like a phantom limb. I'm sure. You just, you just an, a horrible ache. And yet I, I think it is also an opportunity to, to kind of live into what you're talking about, Paul. Like they're not ours. We can't mm-hmm. control it. They're, they've never been ours. So, <laughs> Yeah, I think both the joy and the anguish are part of my practice right now. It's a real light topic. Yeah. These questions are real uppers. <laughs> I think we've done this one. Have you? That's what are we wrestling with right yeah, now. Yeah. So there's only one left. All the right, Richard, you got to do it. Do, do the honors. What is the religion of childhood? 
of your childhood. Is mm-hmm. that what I mean? You know, yeah. Oh, what was your relationship to it? Look at what you all know. I was raised a little Catholic boy in conservative Kansas. Before the Second Vatican Council, which meant a world of feast days and liturgical specialties for those feast days. It was a very beautiful world. Uh, nuns in full habits, these beautifully robed women, you know, teaching us every grade, first to eighth grade. I could name all eight of them. Uh, the priests being really, in our particular, very kindly, mostly Irish figures, you know. Uh, so even calling them sister and father, it was also familial. Hmm. Um, yeah, and then Lent and uh, the statues. Maybe that's where my love of sculpture first came from. I mean, a little Catholic kid, you just grew up looking at the statues. That was really St. Joseph. That wasn't a statue of St. Joseph. That's just what he looked like. It was very magical, you know? And uh, it was blue level, spiral dynamics, there's no doubt. But as you've heard, the blue level is the happiest level. And we were all blue together. There was no liberal, there was no conservative, there were no Protestants. (laughs) (laughs) That always helps. (laughs) (laughs) We we lived in a closed Catholic ghetto that was, as long as it remained closed and everybody was Catholic, was just lovely, Mm. really lovely. then we moved into Orange in the 60s with the Second Vatican Council. We've never enjoyed that primal happiness of Mother Mary and Father Joseph. and It was, it was mythic. It was very mythic, yeah. So it, it was the order that prepared me for the disorder of the 60s. Mm. So it was a good way to start, mm. yeah. How about you, Paul? Yeah, I had a similar start uh, with that sense of order. I grew up in a uh, mm-hmm. denomination called the Evangelical Covenant, and it gave me a sense of grounding of, uh, you know, become a lot of us come from the Scandinavian heritage, and we know who we are. We There's the, the kind of the mantra or the motto was, you know, where is it written? You know, with Scripture being the, the guideline of, like, that's where everything, come, everything comes back to you. And it gave this real sense of security of, like, mm. this guidebook to life. Mm. And it was a wonderful... Because you quoted and memorized yeah. all the Scriptures. We yeah. would do sword drills. I don't know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> do you oh, know yeah. what that is? Right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> no, I don't even know what it is. What is uh, yep. Bible's should up. Do it. Yeah. Yep. We'd, yeah, hold our Bibles up. Yep. And you would name a verse... And we would, the first person to find it would read it uh, aloud. Oh. So you'd have to know all the references. And then, That's yeah. why you yeah. know your scriptures so well. <laughs> wow. So we gamified, we were ahead of the whole gamification movement. Yeah, that's right. Movement. Gamification of religion. That's right. Basically, yeah. Wow. But I'm so grateful for growing up in that space and context. I got a real sense of self and community. Yes. I knew I was loved by the yes. folks in my church. Um, and then... As I continued to to grow and ask questions, it it just broadened me in a way that I started to to seek wisdom and counsel outside of uh, the tradition I grew up in, and mm. so I still have a deep love for it. It was just no longer my my home in the way mm. it had been. Identical to what I was yeah. trying to say. Identical, yeah. Mm. And you, Bree? Well, similar in terms of order. 
um, but with some unintentional disorder mixed in. You know, mm. we're, I was given this uh, box context of, of being a Baptist missionary mm. in Spain, serving God by converting converting Catholics, Catholics. <laughs> <laughs> which is just I mean like what a what a contradiction right there you know um, really. but the okay. funny thing is is I think is my mm. parents were so uh, countercultural at the time and uh, in terms of what the Baptists were doing they were really dedicated to being involved in the city and so they opened up wow. youth centers and they were working with the Spanish government um, to create anti-drug programs and wow. my mom uh, took care of of uh, AIDS patients and so I grew up around their radical example mm. mixed with the very rigid kind of theology that I was being handed and so I think it created this weird uh, sense of incompatibility or there's got to be something more than this you know like there, there has to be more than believing that somehow this beautiful culture that I loved that I considered myself part of was wrong for being Catholic, oh, yeah, and that yeah. somehow we were right for being Baptists. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, but I am. I'm. I'm also grateful. I'm. I'm grateful for the sword drills and for the experience of that, like that rock solid certainty that That's I had right. as a kid. That's and because right. yeah. the child, and don't deny your children that. Yeah, they, they need to be in awe about this is right. Yeah, this is good. And yet, yet <laughs> I remember as a kid. Feeling like there's this can't be it, you know. I remember watching a procession of Mary. Speaking of statues, <laughs> and you know, there's like this orchestra is playing. Like, I mean, it sounded like the Godfather. Like, <laughs> you know, it's like these horns, and they're all out of tune, and all the women are covered in their their, their veils and the yeah. mantillas. You know, oh my God, it was like the most beautiful thing ever. And I would sit in the window and I would just watch it. And so my heart responded to it. And then I remember there was one time my mom came up behind me. She said, oh, it's so sad. They're so confused. <laughs> you know? And I'm just, confused Catholic. <laughs> you, know? And, you know, but my heart feeling like there's got to be there's something, something good big. There's something there too, yeah. Yeah. So I guess in closing, Richard, speaking to that, that desire, that hunger for something big and uh, big enough to hold everything um, that you've so often written about and taught about. When you set off to write this book, mm. did you have that sense that, that this is this is the piece that could hold all these different things together? Yes. Mm. That's exactly. I knew it was, I felt it was, my last book, it had to summarize everything that could hold all the previous uh, wisdom together, mm-hmm. in effect, uh, which seems such an arrogant hope. But I wrote the book with great confidence. And yet, it, as I told you, I think last time, it took a year and a half mm-hmm. because we went through so many back and forths mm-hmm. with the editor. They they loved it already, but, oh, Richard, this chapter should be here, and you, you're not introducing this idea well enough. You need an example for this. So if the book is at all good, it's in great part because I worked with editors like never before. Mm-hmm. And they never tried to change my ideas. God bless them. It was always just they were in, as invested in it as I was. And we got to get this point across. Do it this way. And they were invariably right. So I wrote it with confidence, but 
with irritation too. I got to go through this again. <laughs> oh, I must have gone through that book twenty times. Wow. You know, yeah. So, um, I really, I do hope and pray because we need to change the game. Mm-hmm. I don't use this in an arrogant way. I hope it can be a game changer for many people. Mm-hmm. To reframe this gospel that appears to be falling apart, and I hope I, I am able to make the case that if this is true, why would anybody react against it? Mm. <laughs> There's nothing to hate here. Mm. There's nothing to fear here. There's nothing to compete with. Mm. This is good stuff. If, not because it's my stuff, but because it's the good news. It's the gospel, and we've just got the freedom and the access to history that none of our ancestors had that i can quote first century third century 10th century 11th century and uh and know about what these people said Mm. and very few people and thomas aquinas didn't have the access to sources that you and I have. Yeah, yeah. or the or the uh, cosmic perspective of the, yeah, science. Even are the yeah. science. Psychology. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good point to make. Yeah, thank you. So, Richard, now that the title of the book has been finalized, <laughs> um, I wonder if you could share what the original title was, because it's now the name of our podcast. I hope I picked the right one. Another name for everything. <laughs> yes. Mm-hmm. Another name for everything, every and thing separated. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I believe that, that all thingness, physicality, materiality, is an apparition of the divine. Mm-hmm. And uh, our, our shortcut word for that, I'm not saying it's the only word, but our shortcut word for that, that no one else has really claimed in such a way, is Christ which simply means the anointing of reality with deeper meaning. So, uh, yeah, it doesn't, it's not a religion to join anymore. Mm-hmm. <laughs> In fact, some people join the religion, it seems, <laughs> never, never uh, finding the new pair of eyes. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, they finally talked me out of that title. And I think the one we have is probably better because that might sound a little esoteric mm. to someone are mm. claiming too much mm. might seem a little arrogant so now i think is it a name of a chapter now in the book another name for everything i don't think it yeah. is it? no maybe no. at the beginning like just part one or oh, something yeah, it's that's it, it's it, it. The part, part one. one another name for everything yeah, yeah that's right but we're, we're happy to claim it yeah. for this conversation Ooh, series well, as we talk you. about the themes of the book because i think it's uh and to hear that you've already gone over the book 20 times with your editors, oh. we're grateful that you're going over it with us here, too. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah, and as as students of the path, uh, we're so grateful for the time you're taking to just oh my goodness. unpack the book what with us. What else would I do? <laughs> thank you, thank you for caring that much. Mm. Thank you both. And we're going to have more conversation. Thank yes. you, Richard. All right, okay. let's plan on it. The beautiful music you're listening to is provided by Bird Talker. Another Name for Everything with Richard Rohr is produced by the Center for Action and Contemplation, thanks to the generosity of our donors. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider rating it or sharing it with a friend to help create a bigger and more inclusive community. 
To learn more about Father Richard and to receive his free daily meditations in your electronic mailbox, visit cac.org. If you want to learn about these ideas in more depth, check out the Universal Christ Resource Collection at universalchrist.org. From the high desert of New Mexico, we wish you peace and every good. Do you feel called to walk a more contemplative path? The Center for Action and Contemplation is an educational nonprofit supporting the journey of inner transformation. Our programs and resources will help grow your consciousness, deepen your prayer practice, and strengthen your compassionate engagement with the world. Learn more about our resources, such as publications, podcasts, email series, and events at www.cac.org.